Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Eric Lindblade, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Jim Hessler. Jim, what's tonight's topic? Hey, Eric, and uh, hello, everybody. Welcome back. First of all, we are back on the favorable grounds at our studio at Getty's Gear, and we're going to cover part two of John Sedgwick and the Sixth Corps with esteemed historian Dr. Carol Reardon. Part one, we had great feedback, great response to. Part two is even better, and I would argue, now it's been a while since I've listened to it, Eric, but I would argue by the second or even third hour we were in the studio together, we were getting a little punchy. So I even think there might be a little tension in part two that wasn't in part one. There could be. Stay tuned for that. But but all joking aside, we, we said, I think we coined the term Sedgwick mania was sweeping the world. And what I think is neat is sometimes when there's topics that don't get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. When students of the battle get a chance to delve into that topic, they realize there's kind of a wealth of sources, a wealth of information they didn't really know about, and it's something new. And even though the Sixth Corps was here, we're not saying they're new, but it's something no one's really talked about. And I think it gave people a greater appreciation of John Sedgwick beyond just being the punchline of his death. That's exactly it, that point about the punchline. I know I said it in part one, and... I hate using cliches, but the cliche I'm going to keep coming back to is Sedgwick and the Sixth Corps do deserve more than being a punchline. And so Carol is going to take us through, geez, I don't even remember what she takes us through, but kind of the end of the campaign, I think right up until Sedgwick's death, and it will be treated with the appropriate seriousness that that topic finally deserves. Absolutely. And and it was interesting when we released the episode, we even had folks comment on social media what did the Six Corps do? Why are you doing something with the Six Corps? My argument was, listen to the episode. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it is one of the things that we take a lot of pride in is kind of challenging this kind of preconceived notions that people have about the battle. Mm-hmm. The Six Corps is one of them. Folks, casualties does not equal importance. Yeah. Um, they are just as important as the Second Corps, the First Corps, the Third Corps, any other corps that was on this battlefield. Sometimes your roles are different on a battlefield, but equally important. Yeah, and beyond that, we've talked both in part one, and I think it comes back in part two again, the point about seniority. And Sedgwick's seniority within the Army of the Potomac is a big deal, even sometimes when that might conflict with guys who have less seniority but are in a higher rank. So, yeah, Sedgwick is a big deal, folks. And we don't do what-if history. Of course not. But, you know, we have moments at the Battle of Gettysburg where George Meade is very close to the front lines. Things sometimes happen on battlefields historically. Wouldn't that have been an interesting moment? Okay, Uh, so I just got a light bulb. Thank you, Eric, right? So, of course, we don't do what-if history, even though What If Jackson Was at Gettysburg remains not only our most popular podcast, I think it is, it Still. is. It is going neck and neck right now of June 28th. Okay. They are, they are flip-flopping the lead depending on the week. It's one of the most viewed episodes on YouTube as well, even though we got a few, this is silly, who's doing this type of comments. What if, my idea here is, what if we do a, what if Meade is killed at Gettysburg? Or incapacitated. Incapacitated, I, and, yeah. And folks, there's yeah. a precedent for this. What happens to Joseph Hooker at Chancellorsville? You know what, though? We're the podcast that just goes for it. If we're going to do that, what if? Let's just kill him. Yeah, let, yeah, let's do it. Let, let's take Mead out. All right. Season, what season are you thinking we can squeeze this one in? Nine, season nine Excellent. and a half. Excellent. Oh, you know, somewhere there. Looking forward to it already. So 
enough of our witty banner back and forth. <laughs> Jim, you're coming off a really great event you had just yesterday as as of recording here. Jim, tell the listeners uh, what you did with some super fans over the weekend. Oh, yeah. Geez. Hey, yeah. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for bringing that up. Yes, folks. So June 3rd, 2023, I did one of my Washington, D.C. tours. We kind of jokingly call it the Sickles Murder Tour because it's in and around Lafayette Square and the Sickles Key Murder is the centerpiece of it. But I use the tour, too, to cover what I think and at least what my wife thinks is a lot of interesting stuff that happened in and around the square, whether it's the the Sickles Key Buchanan era or a lot of stuff during Lincoln and the Civil War. But what I really want to do is thank about 40, uh, 40 or so odd super fans and listeners who came out to attend this you know it's not like doing a home playing a home game in gettysburg you got to go into dc and deal with the traffic and the parking so the fact that our dedicated devoted listeners took their time on a saturday to come out in dc and support us boy i i the men and the women of the tour guys ladies gentlemen i just can't thank you enough i'm getting verklempt please take the microphone back well and this is another example of what we call our beyond gettysburg tours which we have coined that phrase a while ago that to describe tours that we do outside of gettysburg that are connected to the gettysburg campaign in one way or the other uh, so certainly be on the lookout on our social media and website for more of these events coming up, because I think it's going to give you a perspective on the war that maybe you don't always get just being here at Gettysburg. Yeah, I thoroughly agree. And I should point out, too, in the afternoon, uh, we also, with the help of Superfan Jody, who helped arrange the second half of this, we went on to the Lincoln's Cottage at the uh, Old Soldier's Home. And during their presentation, we got a private tour of the facility, the docent giving us a tour mentioned what a proficient wrestler Abe Lincoln is. Oh. And like 20 people in the room all looked at me at the time like, we have we missed the opportunity to not bring more Abe Lincoln wrestling references onto the show? Well, you know, we have Lincoln a wrestler. We, I actually have an account of pro wrestling that was put on at Camp Colt in you 1918. Do. So Dwight Eisenhower seemingly liked pro wrestling. Jimmy Carter visits here at one point jimmy carter's mother yeah, a right. longtime fan of georgia championship wrestling her favorite wrestler mr wrestling too i remember that yeah lillian and mr wrestling too best part she wanted <laughs> him to come visit her at the white house the secret service required that he can't wear his mask this is dedication to kayfabe, folks. Exactly. When you do not take your mask off to meet the mother of the President of the United States. Folks, that is commitment to your art that I just, I just, I love. And is there any commitment to our art going on here that we are leading in to an episode with the esteemed Carol Reardon talking about pro wrestling? Well, what better? So with that, Jim, I think, all joking aside, we should... Get to it to all seriousness, what is a very yeah. interesting episode. I think Carol brings some very great insights into John Sedgwick, his troops. And I think it's going to really add a lot more to the story of the Sixth Corps, not only here at Gettysburg, but certainly beyond as well, because they will see a lot of action in 1864 and even into 1865, a, a very underappreciated core in a lot of respects. So with that, we will move on now to esteemed historian Carol Reardon for part two of John Sedgwick and the Sixth Corps. So often on tours, as we finish Pickett's Charge, we have our groups that are looking across the field, and often people say, 
well, why didn't me just go after those guys? They're, they're sinners weak. Go after them. Break them. Well, think about, as you, I think, really put it well, the, the Band-Aids that Meade is using as the Sixth Corps. These guys are spread out all over the field on July 3rd. You can't just snap your fingers and get mm-hmm. a core together. So let's kind of talk a little bit about that, you know, the challenges they have. And, and I think also, as Carol mentioned, their real role in the Gettysburg campaign, not just getting here, is what we call the, the retreat, pursuing Lee back to Virginia. Well, when it comes to the repulse after Pickett's Charge, when I was researching the Pickett's Charge book, the, the one, one of the pieces of evidence, and I'm air quotes around evidence here, was a, um, a pamphlet that was put out by a bus company. Oh, and yeah. okay. <laughs> Jim's already <laughs> laughing because I think he may have seen this already. But it, it, it was explaining how Pickett's charge could be repulsed as quickly as it was and efficiently as it was. And they've gone into great detail on all the other parts of the battle, and they have Pickett's men getting closer and closer to the angle when all of a sudden up to fire a smashing volley that just shatters Pickett's line was, ta-da, the Sixth Corps has finally arrived. <laughs> And I remember reading that and just, well, okay, it's the the groaner, the howler that all of us who write history hope we never make. And I mean, it was really painfully bad. And then, of course, the question, then you start thinking, well, what if? Well, as you learn from any in-depth exploration as to what the Sixth Corps really did during the battle, it's been divided and divided again so that its brigades are scattered all over the battlefield. There was no entity such as that we could call the Sixth Corps that could mm-hmm. be pushed forward to help in the repulse of Pickett's Charge. To the extent that there's at least a division together, it's down just extending north from Little Round Top. It's not situated in a such a location to be able to do that. So it's really easy to take care of the what, what could the Sixth Corps have done to help in the repulse mm-hmm. of Pickett's charge. The answer, nothing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's easy to get past that. So, but then you go into the next day. The armies are beginning to draw away from each other. And one of the things that Meade needs to know is, okay, who's moving? How far are they moving? How fast are they moving? And I need some troops to, go, I need some troops to do reconnaissance to, now, most of my corps have been beaten up pretty bad, mm-hmm. but the Sixth Corps is, is, is available to do some of these things. So sometime, sometime on one of your next visits here, drive very slowly. Actually, drive the speed limit, the real speed limit down the Emmitsburg Road. Nobody ever really does that. But drive the real speed limit down the Emmitsburg Road, look on the west side of the road, and go very slowly. You'll see a small blocky monument not too far from the Rogers House site, that has a Greek cross on it. And you're going to go, huh, what? What's that doing there? You may even be encouraged now to pull over and take a look at it. (laughs) And what you'll find out is that it's a monument to the uh, 2nd Rhode Island Infantry that belongs to the brigade of Colonel Henry Eustace. Now, Eustace's brigade is one of the ones that's in Newton slash Wheaton's division, 3rd Division of the 6th Corps. And so what is this 2nd Rhode Island monument doing plopped out in a line that where all the other Union mon- monuments that you can see are either 2nd or 3rd Corps? And one little 6th Corps monument sitting there. Well, if you go back and read their after-action report, uh, the colonel will explain that they were among the units that were sent forward on, on July 4th to go out and test and see if the Confederate line on Seminary Ridge was still intact. 
and they went forward out into the fields that would have been part of Pickett's charge the day before, and they did run into Confederate skirmishers, and there was a firefight out there. The second Rhode Island only takes one uh, fatality there, a private by the name of Charles Powers, but it was suffered on the 4th during mm-hmm. that advance forward. That's why they put a monument there. That's where they suffered some loss. That gave it some meaning. Mm-hmm. But it explains what the 6th Corps is now being used for. We, we hear uh, stories from the 11th Corps that fought on the 1st, and then it gets seems to get kind of quiet, except we know that they're involved in all that street fighting and the fighting between the lines. But they're the ones who are going to go into town to see if the Confederates have left. But when it comes down to checking on Seminary Ridge, it's usually the 6th Corps that's going out. Mm-hmm. Check and see if the Confederates are still there and finding out, in fact, that they are not or or that they're beginning to push back. Well, so we know we can already see signs of what the Sixth Corps is going to be used for over the next um, couple of days. General Meade knows that he's going to have to mount some kind of a uh, pursuit of of General Lee's army. But what he has to deal with first and foremost, and of course, it's one of the great debates about Gettysburg. Why, why didn't Meade, shouldn't Meade have pursued more aggressively? Mm-hmm. Which becomes, could he have pursued more aggressively? And if not, why not? And, and it, it becomes a very loaded question after a certain point. But if you think about these guys in the Sixth Corps, in their massive march to get here, they have marched out of their shoes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are reporting shoes that are falling off, shoes that they're marching in bare feet. If it's not shoes, it's socks. Mm-hmm. We always talk about shoes. We don't often talk about socks. Socks are important. Socks are important. And shoes without socks it can be very painful. It rains a lot right after the battle yeah. is over. Wet leather shoes and no socks are horrible on What feet. could go wrong? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just absolutely um, a, 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 a tough situation. We're still learning more and more about how tough it was here at Gettysburg on the 4th and 5th of July. I've, sp- I've been spending a lot of time recently over at the George Spangler farm mm-hmm. um, and, and taking a look at hospital care at the farm and what they had to struggle through. Now, it was an 11th Corps hospital, not a 6th Corps hospital, although one or two 6th Corps soldiers were taken care of there. It was a hospital that was established on the 1st, but for the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, they literally had to feed and shelter and do everything they could for the 1,900 soldiers that ended up being taken care of with things that they had on hand. Because remember, General Meade made the uh, decision early on, send forward the ambulances and the ammunition trains, but supply trains and all that stay behind. They're only going to begin to get here on the 5th. And it's only on the 5th that the hospitals are going to have tents to put up and have clothing and food and the big kettles that you need to put on uh, water for either cleaning bandages or to make soup. Or The bedpans didn't arrive until the 5th. I mean, the important things like that that we have to be thinking about. All those supplies are just beginning to come in. So here you have the 6th Corps that needs especially footgear, but everything else you can possibly imagine that isn't here yet but somebody has to start a pursuit. Sure, Meade should have gone forward faster. He should have launched a really aggressive pursuit, but they can only go as fast as the men's feet can take them. Hmm. And right now, we, ha- we have big problems in that, in, the, in that regard. And so it's going to be a slow thing. It might have been nice if folks in Washington had been 
sort of keeping an eye on things and done what they could from their end to push things uh, forward faster, it would have been nice if they could have, if, if they looked beyond the Army of the Potomac to look at other troops that were available in the area that could have contributed to this and moved them into a position where Meade could have tapped into them, but he doesn't do it. They, they, Halleck and folks in Washington don't do anything much to help General Meade in this regard. So it's really up to um, focusing on the, the people who were here and what they could and couldn't do. So the Sixth Corps is going to be the ones who will be sent forward to carry out Meade's plan. We know that General Lee is going to send his troops back to Virginia using two columns, the one that goes through Monterey Gap that's most of the combat power, and the longer one that has the train with all the wounded in it. Um, General Meade will also have two options as far as how to follow Lee back into Virginia. One will be to follow him down the Fairfield Road, just stay right on his tail, and the other is to just simply cut south here from Gettysburg, go back into Maryland, go over South Mountain, and try to intercept him closer to the uh, Potomac River. Just as Lee used two routes, Meade's going to try to use two routes mm -hmm. too. And when it comes to the route that goes straight toward Fairfield, it'll be the Sixth Corps that'll be sent out on that. And as you drive the Fairfield Road today, I sure wish they would mark it. I, I think uh, yeah. I think it would be really wonderful if now that we're getting more interested in it that there could mm -hmm. be a few interpretive markers along right. the way, because frankly I'm not always quite sure if I'm looking at exactly the right ridge. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that it'll be the Sixth Corps that will push forward. We know that some of the Confederates, including Anderson's Georgians, at one point are going to deploy and try to put up a little bit of resistance against the uh, the, the Confederates. But we we have some idea of what that's like. Now, the, the Union Cavalry is going to intercept the Confederates up around Monterey Gap and all mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But the Sixth Corps story really isn't done just yet because it, it'll be Neal's brigade again, the yeah. guys who were up on Wolf's Hill, the guys who haven't suffered a whole lot of casualties, who are going to push up, uh, follow the Union Cavalry up over Monterey Gap and ultimately will find themselves down in the present-day town of Waynesboro. Mm -hmm. And... Once they get down there, it, it, it's interesting to read what Colonel Neal, or yeah, right at the time he was still Colonel Neal, was going to write about getting down there. He said, once we get down there, the people around Waynesboro are just delighted because the only people they've seen recently are Confederates. And this is back when they were on their giant shopping trip in, in Pennsylvania and taking things more than anything. So they were just delighted to see that um, there were Union troops in blue uniforms among them. But then they found out that they weren't going to be there for very long. And militia and emergency volunteers from New York and uh, Pennsylvania began filtering down the Cumberland Valley and down toward Waynesboro. And all of a sudden, Neil is there saying, there's all these absolutely useless militiamen showing up, and they're causing more problems than they're worth. And you know, General Sedgwick, can we please come home? <laughs> you know, please, please let us come back with the Army. And Sedgwick will will agree, and he'll recall Neil, and Neil rejoin the Sixth Corps. And the, re the Sixth Corps with the rest of the Army will now follow down into Maryland and, and get involved in the fighting down there, and, and get involved in a little skirmish around Funkstown on the outskirts of Hagerstown. And they'll take, they'll, they'll take more casualties at Funkstown than they will have taken up, in, up at Gettysburg. But, so that's kind of their signature at the end of the uh, the, at the end of the campaign. But it's really kind of intriguing that when Neil has a chance to talk to Sedgwick about what's, what their experiences were like, he spent a lot of time talking about 
his time in Waynesboro, saying that the relationship between the, the civilians in Waynesboro and his own men was very positive, that the regulars, the, the experienced soldiers were polite, tried to respect private property, except when they couldn't, and then they'd try to pay for it, or at least would, would ask permission. They tried to act as gentlemen. And they said, well, you would think that the actual comparison would have been between the Confederates and our Union veterans coming in. He said, no, the, the real comparison ended up being between the Union veterans and the militia that were now arriving and said that these guys were amateurs in the military. Their idea of what was true sacrifice was nothing like the reality of, of fighting. You know, we hadn't had a good meal in three weeks. These guys didn't have a good meal since last night. And, and they were taking everything that they could possibly get, and they were abusing private property. Hmm. And, and the local residents were really much happier when the regulars were around, meaning the full-time Army of the Potomac guys, than the militia. And that's another part of the Gettysburg story we don't really, right. we don't talk about. I mean, I just said militia, and probably a number of you are out there just kind of scratching your head going, militia? And we remember, we remember the 26th Emergency Regiment mm -hmm. on the 26th of June and their fight just west and then another one north of town. And then that drops out of our narrative altogether. If we're going to follow the Confederates from Gettysburg back to their crossings of the crossing the Potomac, there is an element where we're bringing in a whole new bunch of militia again, and it's another chapter that we don't and, really talk about. And that's not trivial because, again, sometimes you see in Gettysburg books, well, in addition to the Army of the Potomac, Meade had all sorts of militia to draw off of, and very often authors and historians don't make any distinction whatsoever mm -hmm. in the quality. Right. You know, that you're not going to be sending militia after the Army of Northern Virginia, and people often forget that. And when Halstead writes his, his letter to Sedgwick's sister, he's going to mention the fact that during the retreat, the Sixth Corps got mixed up with some of these uh, militia, and I think he shares his boss's concern, if not contempt, for the militia uh, as well. He said, no, that's not the way we do things here. Right. And uh, if somebody can roll their eyes out loud, you could, you could hear it in that letter, that, that they didn't like that at all. And I think when we look at the retreat even, certainly in the last 20, 25 years, there's been a lot of great work done on the retreat that has filled a big gap, but really, there's a gap between Gettysburg to the mountains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Once we yeah. get over the mountains, yeah. we get a lot of, yep. and I've done a lot of research on J. Irving Gregg's brigade going down the Chambersburg Pike, and people say they didn't pursue heavily enough. When they get out there, they go, we have thousands of wounded Confederates here yeah. that we're having to capture, that we're having to deal with, even for the Sixth Corps. They're marching down the Fairfield Road, mm -hmm. they're hungry, and their feet hurt, and it's hot. Yeah. yeah. No one wants to do that. The best thing the militia probably could have done for them in Waynesboro, give them their food and give them their shoes. That would have been the most important <laughs> thing they could have contributed to the Gettysburg campaign. And I think we forget about that. that these are challenges. And then, oh, yeah, we're running up against Confederates yeah. on the Fairfield Road. And so that's kind of that little area. It's sort of like we go from Gettysburg to Monterey Pass. Yeah. And we don't think what happens to get there. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, th I think you're, you're on to something there, Eric. There's, just a couple of weeks ago, we were filming some uh, video with the American Battlefield Trust and Gettysburg Foundation. Oh, Superfan Gary. Yeah, yes. Superfan Gary. Newly dubbed Superfan yeah. Gary. Okay. He's well, acknowledged. We were yes. doing that. And one of the possibilities that I threw out there is we're always trying to find that new little piece, yeah. okay? Now, if you take a look at that, something that all us super fans have, and that's the big Phil Lano um, Atlas of Gettysburg mm -hmm. maps, there's that one map 
that's on the lead up to Gettysburg that shows uh, Buford's approach toward Gettysburg when he's going over the mountains mm-hmm. from you know Waynesboro. Yeah. He's going through yeah. Fairfield, and or he's going uh, along the road that the uh, uh, yeah one of the roads goes up toward Fairfield, and there's going to be a very brief skirmish. Mm-hmm between Gamble's brigade and some unknown Confederates. Depending on who you look at, it could be the 2nd Mississippi, the 42nd Mississippi, or the 52nd North Carolina. I tend to think it's the 52nd North Carolina because they are detached from Pettigrew that day. Well, I mean, if you go out there Mm -hmm. and you try to follow footnotes and all that, they take you all different kinds of places, Mm -hmm. but there's just this one little map. And um, I thought it would be interesting. Let's go and take a look at the ground and see if we can see a logical place where there were uh, because there was there was even artillery involved mm-hmm. and there's a great account of it that comes out of the uh, 8th Illinois Cavalry I think mm-hmm. that, that, so we know it happened and all yeah. that turns out there's not a really good place I know what the I know what the map says but putting it on the ground as opposed to what the map says is something else entirely yeah um, and we ended up not doing that piece but I'm sitting there going, well, why don't we know more about yeah, this? You know, yeah. and because right now we're at the point where we think, well, we know everything there is to know. No, we don't. No, folks. We, get over it, yourselves. Yeah, <laughs> ironically, Britt and I touched on that skirmish in the Peach Orchard book because we were talking about Buford's route in kind of, yeah. you know, through that part. But you're right. There just isn't a lot there. And Gettysburg aficionados love the minutiae. I mean, how many people would get in in the June 30th skirmish at Fairfield? Mm -hmm. People would love that. Well, I think, uh, you know, and we've talked about this before, I think with the level of minutiae we've devoted to the battle over really the past 25 to 30 years, I mean, I feel like when I look at the historiography, I've seen a huge uptick since like 1990. So maybe we're talking... 30 years, I really think the next 20 years or so are going to be the time for the advance and the retreat, Mm -hmm. you know, where we're really going to be doing things like this, going out with the Facebook videos and all of that saying, geez, you know, we've done the anniversary on the battlefield for like 20 years in a row. What else is there? And I think maybe some of these little out of the way places with advance Mm -hmm. and retreat, you know, this is going to be the time when we're going to start seeing that. Hey, how many times have we joked about doing a July 4th book at Gettysburg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric and I have a project in the works. On yes, that, well, but there, there's, there's room for it. I mean, and these are critical moments. I mean, and I think when we look at these challenges that Meade has to face, his supply depot is in Westminster, Maryland. Yeah, he's moving to the southwest. The directions don't work that way. He's got a. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things Meade has to work out, and also as much as we talk about the condition the the Confederates are in, not like the Union Army sitting there pretty. Um, where's John Reynolds? Where's Hancock? Where is Dan Sickles, who could have aggressively <laughs> led the pursuit? Uh, you know, this is an army that's in rough shape. And, you know, and we still have to remember at this point that Meade's only commanded his army for a week. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you know that's yes, well, what you're saying is he shouldn't have had all this figured out by now? Yeah. Well, it's, it's really fun when I bring groups of fairly senior officers here and say, okay, after you've been assigned to a position um, uh, that's a significant promotion, what do you do to get ready for it? And they start talking about like a six-week or six-month period. First, you, know, you go to a school to learn how to do this, and then you uh, do all. You know, and I said, what would you be doing one week after you found out you were going to happen? And they'd be saying, you know, finding out where it is on a map or something mm-hmm. like that. When you get them focused on the tr- that transition, and how much meat accomplishes in a week. 
mm-hmm. their head spin. They yeah. said, you know, this, is, this would be impossible to do today. I've often and, said it's one of the most impressive performances by an Army commander in American military history for what he was able to accomplish here. Considering the, the constraints, yeah. you, you made the point yeah. six weeks to six months yeah. to prepare for this. Meade's got a week. Yeah. And also, the fate of the nation's kind of hanging the balance yeah. here. It's yeah. not like yeah. the stress isn't there. You know. Well, and as we know in the literature, Meade is probably just kind of finally starting to get his yeah. due. I mean, there are still anti-Meade books that come out periodically mm-hmm. every couple of years. But again, the literature has very much turned pro-Meade to the to the point that um, it's really hard, I think, to do a deep dive analysis of him these days that really factors in any mistakes, because we want to look at the positive aspects of it. Well, and you, But you pointed it out, the transition that he's making compared to what the modern military would be dealing with is unheard of. When I first started leading staff rides here, the, the framework seemed to be, how did Robert E. Lee screw this up? Yeah, mm-hmm. it, was, right. it was Lee-focused. And the working assumption was, you know, this was Lee's battle to, to, to lose. How did he manage to do it? And we had a group of Marines here one day, and I noticed something. This was a school that uh, came up here every year, and over the years they had developed a, a set of um, basically file cards with notes on it, and individual Marines were going to brief at various spots. But I noticed that these file cards were kind of yellowish and crumpled and a little bit. So apparently they'd been handed down from class to class. So there wasn't a whole lot of original thinking going on here. And, you know, we're trying to get these people to think and analyze. Mm -hmm. And if they're just reading off cards, we're not accomplishing the mission. Yeah. So one year we just simply said, we're not going to talk about how General Lee lost this battle. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about how General Meade won it. Mm -hmm. And first of all, they glared at us because that meant they actually had to do the work for Mm -hmm. once. But, (laughs) But it turned out to be... I don't know how the actual officers felt about it, but the instructors, we were jazzed after that because it was almost like we discovered something yeah. you know, mm-hmm. so fresh and brand new. How, how is it we did not see this? Opened up a dusty and, cupboard. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, yeah. so that's, that's a really good thing that we are seeing right now. And it gives us a chance to alter misperceptions, mm-hmm. and it gives us a chance to find... New things that really we shouldn't have to find. I think one of the most, I mean, it gets us a little off track, but if we're, if we're talking about, you know, aha moments and all that, Pete Vermilier's article back in about 2000 in Gettysburg Magazine about the Confederates capturing and taking South uh, black Pennsylvanians. Mm-hmm. Um, when that first came out, there were a lot of people going, wow, didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I mean, now it's part of the narrative, but yeah. before it wasn't. But the thing is, if you went back and read the Chambersburg newspapers in July mm-hmm. of 1863, it was all there. Right. It was all yeah. there. And how did we not see it? How did we... It, it's probably not that we missed it, but during the period of when you try to talk about national reunion, you wanted to take out the things that were kind of disquieting, and it probably dropped away back mm-hmm. then. But as far as understanding... The, the nature of this advance into Pennsylvania and what they meant by taking things of military value, it extended to include human beings. Yeah, yeah. And, and that changes the way you look at this, mm-hmm. this invasion a little and, bit. And people want more human interest in the story today. It's not all just military staff mm-hmm. rides that come here. Mm-hmm. And people, people, to get a fuller understanding of it, they want more of that human interest. Which and covers even the that. military just doesn't, doesn't want just the military well, good, anymore. Good. Because, good well, I mean, 
if you think about what our troops have been doing in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 25 years, have they been dealing with uh, adversaries that are armed only? Mm-hmm. A lot of it has been mm-hmm. uh, dealing directly with civilians. Uh, today's military needs to know as much about dealing with culture and civilian right. interaction as they do with the military. So they're opening up their minds to what they deem important. And so they would find Sedgwick's ex- or Neil's experiences with the Sixth Corps in Waynesboro as insightful Good. as mm-hmm. um, you know, Pickett's Charge yeah. when okay. it came right down to it. Um, they would find it interesting that it was the trained troops under good discipline that uh, got along better with the mm-hmm. civilians than the, the the Yahoo militia types that came in and just took what they needed and did it from a sense of, well, we're serving the country, so you should just help us anyway and, and take what they need. So, yeah, I mean, there's still all kinds of lessons that we can learn from this, and sometimes they aren't the lessons we think are the obvious ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, for us and what we do as public historians, we have a wide breadth of folks. I can have mom and dad and the mm-hmm. two kids from Topeka, Kansas. Tomorrow I'm doing a staff ride for National Guardsmen from the state of Tennessee. Yeah. What I think is very interesting to me that I've noticed in my career is whether it's the general public or even military groups, the lack of understanding of what Civil War armies are actually capable of doing, not what we want them to do. Because I think with hindsight, we're all great generals. We all know what we should do. But when these guys are foot sore and they're hungry, that matters. That impacts their performance. Uh, Having to deal with thousands of wounded impacts your performance. And and I think that's where it's always a challenge because we, I know the 19th century army better than I know the 21st century army. Sometimes 21st century military leaders don't understand the 19th century armies as much. I think there's, you have to kind of bridge that gap at times. It's not just what we want these armies to do, but what were they at this moment actually able to do and realistically do? Yeah, you know, I think that's right. Obviously, the Monday morning quarterback aspect of this, which still permeates. I think Gettysburg books are getting better at Mm -hmm. focusing on what did they know when they Mm -hmm. knew it. But obviously, when you deal with the public on social media and things like that, that is still very much littered with, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda type of thing, as opposed to, again, if you focus on what did they know when they knew it, obviously, Meade does a hell of a job. And, uh, you know, what do we think of Sedgwick ultimately here? Well, I mean, the next big decision point that we have is on the 13th of July when there's going to be another one of those meetings of the generals, and Meade's going to be asking, well, what do we think? Are we going to uh, attack these fortifications around Williamsport? Are we going to try to have that one uh, big attack? And uh, Sedgwick will be among those who will vote no, don't attack. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems consistent with uh, his caution and all this, but he was not alone in in voting no for uh, when it comes to making that attack. And again, we don't get it directly from him, but again, from his staff officer who's writing uh, home to Sedgwick's sister, because Sedgwick is busy, and saying that uh, we could see the earthworks that were put in place. Uh, We could assess the likelihood of success against them. We had won a great victory at Gettysburg. We did not want it to be reversed reversed by a, uh, like Pickett's charge in reverse Mm -hmm. here at, at, at Williamsport. It made sense to wait and examine other options. And, you know, we can't help it that we woke up the next morning and they'd crossed the river and we were gone. We still preserved the the victory that we had and did as much as we could and no farther. Was Mr. Lincoln upset? Sure he was. 
Now, who wouldn't be? Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, remember that Mr. Lincoln, when it comes to leadership, one of the things that we always uh, say that it's important to congratulate in public and criticize in private. Yeah. Lincoln made clear to Meade and, and Halleck and the inner circle that he was not happy with all this. But his public message to the American people was to congratulate the Army of the Potomac and General Meade on their successes. Mm -hmm. And let, let's move on from there. And, and General Meade was able to make that decision because another thing that he had managed to do very quickly was to get buy-in from his senior mm -hmm. subordinates to, to make it happen. And certainly Sedgwick was one of the most loyal when it came to uh, supporting what Meade wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So none, none, none of this is particularly surprising. But again, when Howard writes that letter to the president on the 17th of July, when he says that our success at Gettysburg was, was due to the commanding officer doing some important things. One thing he said that we've talked about before was the use of reserves, that no previous commander had been able to use reserves on site in the middle of the battle as well as, as Meade had done. But the other thing that Howard gave him credit for was getting the active cooperation of all of the senior subordinates. Mm -hmm. After all the politics and backbiting and backstabbing of the Burnside and Hooker period, and even going back to some of McClellan's, this seemed like such a refreshing comment, mm -hmm. comment to be made when, you know, hey, we were actually all rowing together in the same direction. And I, I guess it seems weird that that becomes one of the major shining revelations of the, in the middle of the war and tells you how bad it had been up to this mm -hmm. point. But it takes everybody to row in the same direction. And Sedgwick, I think, lends certain amount of gravitas to that whole approach to getting things done. And I always sort of chuckle when people fault Meade for his councils of war, yeah. which I think is actually not a bad leadership style considering the time he's been in. And also it goes back to my point of what is this army actually capable of doing right now? Who better to tell you that than your corps commanders, your well, division commanders, those that are seeing it right there? Well, I mean, I always say, you know, we fault Meade for having councils of war and then we fault Lee for not having councils mm -hmm. of yeah. war. And again, all we're doing is faulting. Meade's only had command for a few days. He needs to. He needs information. He needs you know. To, yeah. he, he needs to hear how's your corps doing? How's your corps doing? But any soldier who's had a leadership experience at all says that there is so much benefit to be gained from just simply looking the guy in the eye. Mm -hmm. You can't get that on email. You can't. There's some things like that that they say are harder to do today yeah. because of um, you know satellites and email and things like that. But Meade really needed to be able to look into his eye. I mean, I, I always think about that conversation that Meade had with General Gibbon. Of course, we only get Gibbon's uh, interpretation of it, but it's right. uh, General Gibbon, if you attack tomorrow, it'll be in your front. Um, and Gibbon said, well, well, we'll be ready for him. And, and that's, that's exactly what Meade wants to hear. I mean, if Meade says, if General Lee attacks tomorrow, it'll be in your front, and the first thing out of you is, are there nearby reinforcements when I get <laughs> right, more artillery? Right. Uh, I'd be a little bit more nervous. And if he said, yikes, I'd really want to know that right now mm -hmm. rather than tomorrow. Uh, you know, I have a hunch he's having a lot of conversations like I'm that. I'm sure, yeah. Because mm -hmm. either he really wants to know or I don't know you very well. Mm -hmm. and I'm, so I'm going to yeah, yeah. throw something out there and, if, and I want to see how you respond to it. But when he, get, he, when he likes what he hears, um, he walks away feeling... Yeah pretty good about it and that that's just that's just smart mm -hmm. agreed 
And I think the challenge that Meade and the Army of the Potomac has is what are they often compared to a day later? The entire surrender at Vicksburg. Yeah. It's a different campaign. So I think if you look at, well, Grant captured Pemberton and his force. Why couldn't you why destroy we, Lee? Why couldn't we bag Lee's Well, yeah. it's different. Lee yeah. has escape routes. Pemberton didn't. And, and I think that I've, I've often kind of wondered, what if Vicksburg falls like, you know, a week later? Is Meade's performance looked at a little differently? Because it's not being compared to that. And because it's two different animals at this time. But unfortunately, perception by political leaders and even to this day, sure. some students of the battle, yeah. it still resonates. I think it's a bigger deal to us as historians as it yeah. was to the people back mm, then. I agree. I think the war just continued. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, hey, that... we won one, and let's let's be happy with that. But, you know, when Sedgwick, it, what, what always intrigues me about this is the ability after a major battle for the soldiers to just pack it up, compartmentalize it, mm -hmm. and move on. If you take a look at Sedgwick's writings, and after Gettysburg, they do thin out a good bit. Let's take a brief pause to thank tonight's sponsor, Getty's Gear. You can find them in Gettysburg at 777 Baltimore Pike or always online at gettysgear.com. They have gourmet coffee, cigars, dog treats, stuffies for your kids, and much, much more. So stop by and see our friends at Getty's Gear. Support them like they support us. He's not replaying this battle in his head. Mm -hmm. He's, I mean, he didn't see that much about it, but I mean, the controversies are arising. He's not, he's not talking about those right. things. He's talking about finally getting his presentation sword, and then Meade getting his and mine's better. And That's he's important. talking, I mean, and, and he's talking about, he, he goes back to routine amazingly quickly. And, and that's what you That's, that's an old army officer. I mean, that, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. And, and I think that actually covers a lot in the country as well. I mean, all of us who do research ha have used newspapers yeah. extensively. And we know that for maybe 10 days after the Battle of Gettysburg, long lines of, long columns full of casualties and all that. And then they stop. And then we don't see anything like that again until... September for Chickamauga, and here in the East, we don't see that mm -hmm. much because they're mostly Western units. And, and we don't see, we, we don't get caught up in that same kind of thing, and then when we do, it'll be different until May of 64, when instead of just a, a mm -hmm. couple of days and then nothing, it's going to be every day for, yeah. yeah, and that'll be a whole different kind of a situation. So I can see us worrying about things and, and constantly worrying about them and chewing them over and over again. In spring of 64, except things keep changing so quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're chewing, but it's a different bite, but constantly. I, I, I sense we, we, we have a fairly short memory at this point in the war. Yeah, still. I think for uh, political and policymakers tend to have a more short-sighted view. These professionals know this is going to be a long campaign. There's more work to do, whereas I think Lincoln is thinking not only winning the war, but also what's going to help him politically. He's a political leader. He has to factor that in. And I think there's a different metric. And we still see that today. I think there's a difference between the way the military views operations and a lot of times the way civilians, being the public or political leaders, view it. And then, as you said, sometimes we just forget about it after a while. Those that are still doing it are still doing it, but we move on to something well, else. I think the military and the policymakers in Washington are thinking about different things. Mm -hmm. Lincoln's thinking about it. Yeah, I want to end the war. There's political ramifications. If you're the Army of the Potomac, you're still trying to get your act together. Right. Mm -hmm. And that goes on for the next 10 months. And since Sedgwick's 
core is the least damaged. I don't think he's thinking about it nearly as much mm -hmm. as a Hancock would yeah. once he's mm -hmm. back in or yeah. some of the other cores and, and all that. So yeah, his, his letters are less enlightening than they might be if it was from another core commander. Does, I guess. He, um, does he comment at all as far as what's going on with the Joint Committee on the conduct of the war no. and nothing like that? He's no. just not, not really focused on no. that. Now, as, as we're getting it. But then the, again, his, his writing's thin, thinned down. Yeah, then, yeah. Pretty, pretty dramatically. And so as we're then getting into 64, and Meade is obviously thinking about reorging the army and things of that nature, mm -hmm. Sedgwick at one point is a potential candidate to get dropped. Well, Sedgwick's very interested when, when the rumors start beginning about uh, the reorganization of the Army of the right. Potomac. He's very concerned that the Sixth Corps might disappear. Yeah. Not so much he might disappear, but that the Sixth right, Corps might right, disappear. Right, right, he somewhere else. Uh, he said there's, he, he had heard some talk about consolidation and that what he might, what, what the Army might end up looking like was a First, Second, and Third Corps just because numerically that mm -hmm. made sense. And he said that, you know, if he had a chance, he had uh, a, a way to, to, to deal with it, he would keep, um, I think, I think he said second, third, and sixth. First Corps, we knew, was pretty much too mm, damaged. Yeah. I'm surprised that he dumped on the Fifth Corps, I guess. But uh, the 11th and 12th, of course, had been sent out west. But he, he was very concerned about preserving the Sixth Corps. I, I, I don't think he was all that concerned for himself. You don't think? No, I, I, I think... He was the kind of guy who said, if they opt to do something else with me, that's fine. Yeah, there is some correspondence um, where I think even as you get near the end, yeah. he says something to the effect of, hey, even if I go home, I go home. Yeah. That maybe he's, you know, he, he's look, he's been in the Army his whole life. He's gone I mean, through he, the first he's made, years He's made a war. few comments that when he was contemplating potential retirement back in when the war began, mm -hmm. he said, you know, if fate takes me back to Cornwall Hollow and... Yeah, I live out my life there among friends and family. I'm, I'm okay yeah, with that. Yeah, that's that's the one I was thinking yeah. of. And um, we should we should mention for the Connecticut listeners, he is a good nutmegger. Yeah. Uh, he so, I don't think he would have made a big fuss about it. I think mm -hmm. he would have been the good soldier and and gone home. And yeah, after a job well done, why mm -hmm. not? So many soldiers actually got to make that choice in the winter of '63, '64. All the reg the three year regiments that where their time was going to be up in the spring of 64, had a choice to stay or go. The generals weren't really given that same choice. Mm -hmm. It would have been interesting if they would have said, okay, generals, you in, you out. You know, mm -hmm. How would have Sedgwick have, have gone on that after three years? Probably as the good soldier, he would have stayed, but mm -hmm. if for some reason they opted otherwise, I don't think, oh, okay, fine. Isn't there something, too, about him also being unpopular with Stanton and kind of being viewed as a McClellan guy? Oh, he's definitely considered a McClellan yeah. guy. If he were that unpopular, he would have been gone. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know that it was that deep. That right deep, now. right. Well, um, I mean, ultimately, he does stay. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. But, no, he, he admired McClellan. In fact, after Gettysburg, he knew that he was going to get the sword and the horse and all that good stuff. And he actually entertained the possibility of doing something similar for McClellan. He said, okay, McClellan was uh, relieved of command and sent home to await orders back in November of 62. Mm -hmm. Here it is, July of 63. And we as an army have never actually done anything to thank McClellan for creating us and doing everything he'd done for us. He said, okay, maybe he didn't enjoy battlefield success, but he made us what we are today, mm -hmm. and shouldn't we do something about it? Mm -hmm. And there is some correspondence that's published and everything where he said, uh, I'm going to talk to some of my other core commanders and all that and see if 
if there is a uh, consensus that we should do something. And I don't see where anything happened, but he was the one who was willing to put it on paper and say, yeah, we ought to think about this at least. Mm -hmm. So if you were willing in the summer of 63 to be so obviously pro-McClellan, somebody in Washington is going to notice that. Mm -hmm. And if there had been a reason to make him a target of the Joint Committee... (laughs) Yeah, Maybe they, they would have, would have. That. Mm-hmm. but you know, yeah. there wasn't. So yeah, and obviously there's they other pro McClellan guys like Henry Hunt around and right. things of that nature, and they managed to survive. And there will, there will still be some around. So yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I think in Sedgwick's case, they were looking at maybe reassigning him to the Shenandoah even at one point, which ended up going to obviously to Siegel. But I think there was some talk about that as well. But again, obviously, well, it didn't I mean, happen. E- even Meade was looking for a way out mm-hmm. from under yeah, Grant yeah, for yeah, a while there. Yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, the dynamics were, were going to change pretty quickly. But then again, you know, Sedgwick, once the Overland campaign begins, Sedgwick's not around for very much more well, of it. Should so we take him to Spotsylvania Courthouse we at can this do point? That. Well, let's take him to the wilderness first. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are those who say that if Grant had any issues about Sedgwick, that uh, they might have been reinforced by his performance at the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then again, yeah, Sedgwick finds himself again in a really awkward position in that his core is kind of broken up. Yeah. He has one, Getty's division is down, and, and Getty's division would have been Howe's old division, the Vermonters and all that are down around the Brock Road, but then the rest of his guys are up around the Orange Turnpike, and there's some space in between, and the guys on the Brock Road get chewed up. And if you've never been to the, if you haven't been to the wilderness recently and seen the new Vermont monument that's mm-hmm. gone in to salute the Vermont Brigade, yeah. it's it's worth a little stop there to see it. But then the rest of the corps is up along the Orange Turnpike, and that's where on the second day of the Battle of the Wilderness, Gordon's brigade gets around and uh, outflanks uh, the right end of Sedgwick's line and sends a bunch of them running, and results in the capture of two of his brigade commanders, including General Shaler. Mm-hmm. who we've just talked about as one of the heroes yeah. of Gettysburg, Shaler gets captured in the wilderness along with Truman Seymour. And guarding your flank is one of the most important things that you're supposed to be doing, and somehow, yeah, Sedgwick got flanked. So there are some things that happen in the wilderness. The degree to which he is responsible mm-hmm. is not always clear because there's nothing clear about the wilderness. And uh, so, so there might have been some question marks right there, mm-hmm. but there's no chance to really let him rebound from any of all that because yeah. that was the 5th and 6th of May and well he gets down to Spotsylvania and then on the 9th of May he couldn't see an elephant from that distance so. right and I think it's interesting too Grant's reaction yeah. to hearing of Sedgwick's death mm-hmm. I mean I think whatever feelings he might have had after the wilderness I think he still views him as a capable competent commander I think he felt that loss mm-hmm. that he, yeah you don't grow John Sedgwick's on trees. Yeah. You know, at, late in the war, having an experienced corps commander is important for your army. And, and just, well, the response, having a, it, it wasn't a formal ceremony or anything, but laying him, up, laying him out on an evergreen bower and, mm-hmm. and yeah. people coming in and visiting him almost like it's a funeral home or something like that. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that for John Reynolds. No, right, right. They they didn't do that for uh, other corps commanders. They didn't do it for Mansfield. They d- they don't <laughs> do it for other corps commanders, you know, any, or even division commanders. This is an exceptional response. Well, as I as I said way at the outset of this, it's a shame that we treat it today as frankly a tour guide one liner, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, that gets 
little snickers and laughs mm -hmm. from the folks in the back of the bus, because I think Sedgwick definitely deserves better than that today. His staff was in the area, and in fact, a few of them were pretty much right there, and talked about how it was, how he was so alive at one moment, making sure his artillery was in place and calming his men down mm -hmm. and you know, no problem and all that. And it was the seeming lack of violence attached to his death. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a sharpshooter's bullet that hit him right under the left eye. And they said it was just, like just a small hole. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a lot of blood or anything like that. It was almost like he'd gone to sleep. And mm -hmm. there was just this, but he was, he was gone. And they had trouble wrapping their head, hands around that whole, that whole notion, their head, hands and their heads. So Wright becomes the Corps commander, and when Wright basically says the family stays together, in other words, the staff officers who supported Sedgwick, you know, would you please stay and help me? Um, they, the staff officers, that sense of family, they appreciated the fact that they weren't just dispersed. Mm -hmm. Okay, Sedgwick's gone, so are you. And we'll start with a whole new, uh, a whole new team. They kind of appreciated that you know, Wright apparently thought similarly and continued on with the issues they had in the wilderness. There's history in the war of corps not bouncing back mm -hmm. from things like that. And the fact that really for the Sixth Corps, their best days are still to come. In the Shenandoah Valley and of course in, later in April of 65 at Petersburg. But I think it says a lot about the imprint that Sedgwick had and the influence he had on that corps yeah. that they were able to continue to function. And they were able to uh, keep organized and be an effective unit when you see by 64, 65, a lot of the heavy hitting units we talk of in 62, 63, they're mm -hmm. not a factor anymore. Mm -hmm. The fact that the Sixth Corps was still able to do that, I think says a lot about his management of that Corps and the organization of it, which you got to give him credit for that. Sure. He was the he was the coach of the team, if you will. He was Uncle John. Yeah, the, he, but yeah, he must have created some kind of an interesting command climate because he dies on the 9th and Emory Upton makes his great yeah, decision exactly. on the 10th. Right. And, you know, some colonel pops up and says, I have a different idea for attacking trenches. Mm -hmm. And what would you as a general say? Shut up and remember who mm -hmm. you are. You yeah. But he, he makes his case, and they decide, let's give it a try. And, of course, Grant will say, you know, tried it with a brigade today, or a division today, we'll try it with a corps tomorrow, mm -hmm. and, and all that sort of thing. And Upton's clearly on his way to general stars and, mm -hmm. and, and far more. Yeah. But a junior officer is not going to make that kind of a suggestion unless he's awfully brazenly confident yeah. or unless the command climate permits him uh, that's, that kind of a, an opportunity to yeah, and that's make not, that suggestion. Yeah, and that's not just a military thing. You know, I've been in corporate all yeah. my life, right? In any well-led organization, if you feel empowered to be able to step up and make that suggestion, and obviously they felt that way in the Sixth Corps. So, you know, we have mentioned him, but often when we don't talk a lot about him, we do get listener feedback that says, hey, you didn't do a Dan right. Sickles report. Now, how in the world can we connect Dan Sickles to John Sedgwick and his Sixth Corps? Jim, do you have any idea how you might want to try that? Yeah, I was waiting for the name Martin McMahon to possibly be mentioned on tonight's installment. Uh, Martin McMahon was a staff member uh, with Sedgwick, really from Gettysburg and through the, the end. Uh, when Sedgwick is killed, Martin McMahon is right there and leaves an account of Sedgwick's body literally falling into McMahon's arms. So Martin McMahon is a guy who had a very close connection to uh, John Sedgwick. 
Fast forward to October of 1892, and in New York City, when Tammany Hall's uh, nomination convention is convening to select their congressional candidates for New York City. After the convention was called to order, former Union General Dan Sickles' name was proposed and seconded as, a as the Democrats' choice to run in the city's 10th district. Everyone in the party seemed to be happy with the nomination, except for Martin McMahon, who thought the nomination was going to be his. McMahon was dumbfounded. He was quoted in the newspapers saying, I can't understand it. It's the biggest mistake the party could have made. General Sickles has no constituency, no followers at all. He has hurt the national ticket already, and his running for Congress won't help it any. Might I add, Martin McMahon is not the first person to be dumbfounded by Dan Sickles. But uh, McMahon tried to get the nominating committee to, uh, uh, to change their mind, ultimately insisting that Sickles was, quote, a man of vacillating character, and should he at the last moment decide, as I'm sure he will, not to go into Congress, he would practically turn over the district to the Republican candidate. Now, of course, we know Dan Sickles did not vacillate. Dan Sickles was elected to Congress, established Gettysburg National Military Park a few short years later, and Martin McMahon, the rest is history. Carol, I hope you enjoyed that very special Dan Sickles report. Back to you, Eric. Well, I was going to say that's interesting in 1892 because, of course, in 1890, we had a census. Mm -hmm. What does the census do? It reallocates congressional districts. The, I believe the 10th at one point was represented by John Cochran, who was actually a contemporary of Winston Churchill's. There you go. So more see, Sickles is everywhere. You can connect Sickles to every facet of not only American history, but perhaps world and, history. And Cochran <laughs> was a Tammany Hall Democrat. So I'm just picturing this. There's got to be this time where Churchill, Cochran, and Sickles were in the room together. And if Martin, it didn't happen, I want it to happen. And Martin McMahon. Maybe he was there too. You know what? At this point, he's dead to me. If he didn't want Sickles as his congressman, <laughs> he's not, he's not yeah. Enough. You know, there's a reason we don't know him in history and we know Dan Sickles. The noise you hear are my eyes rolling back in my head. <laughs> hey, this is a pro-Sickles podcast. We, we, don't, we don't hide that. We're biased, but at least we're honest about it. So... So on that note, <laughs> yeah, are you dumbfounded at that point? Or I, I'm to... absolutely speechless. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. It's what we do. When they leave you stunned at the end. Um, I was looking through my, my various notes as I was listening to this sickle story that had nothing to do with Sedgwick. Martin um, McMahon, yes, it did. Stretching, 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 stretching. Sedgwick's corpse <laughs> fell in Martin McMahon's yeah, okay, hands. Sure. There's your Dan Sickles oh, report. Yeah. Um, Anyways. <laughs> what, just one of those stray tidbits that comes out and, and just bites you. Whenever one tries to research using evidence and all that, sort, all that good stuff to try to tell the sixth core story at Gettysburg, it's really pretty difficult because of the fact that they don't fight as one unit. Yeah. Um, but if you keep digging, sometimes you find some interesting things. And the showstopper I found came out of the uh, 49th Pennsylvania Infantry, regimental history. Now, the 49th Pennsylvania was part of Russell's brigade, which puts it down on 
the, the line that extended across the Tawny Town Road facing south. They were, they were sent down there on the morning of the 3rd, and then they were recalled toward the center of the line to perhaps help repulse Pickett's charge, if necessary, later on the 3rd. They weren't down there very long, but they showed a great deal of interest in their surroundings. And they noticed this uh, substantial hill nearby, and they wondered where it was because it seemed like there was a lot of people paying attention to it and that there were, well, clearly had some Union forces on the top of it. They were looking around up, but they did not know the name of the hill. And as we know, if, for those of us who dig deeply into absolutely contemporary sources, you know, stuff that was written on July 2nd and 3rd and 4th of 1863, it's a big hill, a rocky hill. Um, it usually doesn't even have a name or anything like that. Well, apparently these folks went out and uh, asked people, what's the name of that hill? They got a name that I have never seen anywhere else associated with Round Top, which has, you know, we've been making comments about linking Gettysburg and Vicksburg, but it's a name you link with Vicksburg all the time. These guys in the 49th Pennsylvania looked up at the big hill and started calling it Champion Hill. Yeah, right. And, huh? But there's that aha moment that you have when you're digging through all these different sources. Oh, this sounds very ordinary. They called it what? And it's just the one time you see that, and it was just in one regimental history. The virtues of digging deep are really great. I mean, when a student comes to me, when I've given them an assignment for a research paper, and says, okay, tell me what, you're gonna, what you want to write about. If they come to me and say, I want to prove that, I said, no, you don't. Go back and try again. Mm-hmm. Because if you say, I want to prove that, that means you're, you've already decided what your answer mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Being a lawyer, not and, a historian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're going to pick those, you're going to cherry pick those items out of the, uh, whatever, you, whatever sources you're using that will support what you're doing and ignore or reject or obscure or hide or whatever, anything that doesn't fit. So I usually tell them start with a question instead. In this case, if you go into, a, into research with an open mind, with let's see what the evidence tells me, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll find my question after I look at a good bit of evidence, sometimes you find little gems that pop up when, mm-hmm. when, you, least it, or when you least expect them. When I was looking for something else entirely, and all of a sudden saw a reference to Big, Big Round Top as Champion Hill, that was just one of those moments to stop you cold and say, wasn't looking for that one, but you don't forget it. So I know a lot of the, uh, what do you call them? Super fans. Super fans. I know a lot of the super fans out there are, uh, are researchers. I hope you're doing the research the right way. I hope you ask a question and then let the evidence lead you to the answer. And you're not going out to prove something, because otherwise I'll throw rocks at you. And uh, you'll throw rocks from Champion Hill if they're nearby. I certainly will. And, and didn't and Hood kind of talk about there. that? That's they right. can just roll rocks down yeah, off, yeah, off yeah, of see, Champion Hill. Off of Champion it, it, Hill. See, it all comes together. And who was uh, who was actually posted on the western slopes or the eastern slopes of Champion's Hill to? as part of the picket line, the Sixth Corps. So there the Sixth Corps could have been rolling those rocks all along. Any chance Martin Champion McMahon Hill. rolled one of those rocks? He was probably back in the headquarters right, tent. Right, right. So he, you know, he doesn't hit me as a rock roller. Can, yeah. Just to kind of aggravate Vicksburg, because the one time I visited Vicksburg, I was told 
Gettysburg was nothing more than a large raid. Uh, so you know what? I remembered that from a couple of years ago. We're taking Champions Hill. I love it. We're changing the We're narrative. We're taking it. Yeah. We're taking That's it. That's right. All right. Yep. So good luck, Vicksburg. <laughs> Excellent. So, all right. I think we got that for tidbits. Um, so now, now I can Carol's first. I actually have one tidbit if I could. Okay, yeah. Um, Carol, way, way back, mentioned the second Rhode Island as, as the Sixth Corps was pulling out of Gettysburg. And, you know, when I, when I think of the Sixth Corps and as public historians, obviously we want to make the story as relatable to the public as we can. And we look for human interest stories and we look for names and faces to attach, and uh, obviously we've spent a lot of time today talking about John Sedgwick and, and, and some of the lesser known officers, but I would just remind people that the uh, 2nd Rhode Island is Elijah Hunt Rhodes's regiment, uh -huh. and for anybody who may be thinking, where do I know Elijah Hunt Rhodes from? Obviously he has a, uh, a well-known book of correspondence. All for the Union. Yeah, All for the Union, thank you, that was published and is a classic of the literature uh -huh. and many people have read that, but from a histori historical pop culture narrative, Elijah Hunt Rhodes was one of the primary voices in the Ken Burns Civil War series. So if you want to kind of put a name in the face to, you know, somebody below the general level in the Sixth mm -hmm. Corps, I would encourage everybody to go take another look at Elijah Hunt Rhodes, Second Rhode Island here at Gettysburg. And the other connection to the Second Rhode Island, Sullivan Ballou. Oh, very oh, good. There you go. All very right. Good. There we so go. So we got two now. Which, where did that letter come from that got all exactly of a sudden everybody right, knew right. about? You know, I feel like the Ken Burns music should be playing right now. Well, let me get uh, my fiddle. Yeah, yeah. Of course, Jody. now they're saying Sullivan Ballou didn't write that well, letter. Well, exactly. So, okay. so yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so and, and it's, never let historians around a good story. We will trash we will, it for we will, you. We will kill it. In just a couple of minutes. Well, that was, you know, when you, Jim, when you debunked the cigar... Yeah. With Sickles, you destroyed my childhood. I know. I destroyed my childhood, too. I mean, I, my my image of Sickles was being carried off smoking the cigar, and you ruined that for I, me. You but you're still one of my best friends. Well, I appreciate what? that. He wasn't smoking the cigar? You have not read Sickles at Gettysburg? I, I know. Have, you, I know you own a copy. Time. Well, go but back, to, go back to that chapter. That go back to that chapter. You have and, a whole and chapter on the cigar? We do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> a guy, oh, a, Lord. A guy in an Amazon review said that chapter actually scared him off smoking cigars. So, you know, we're also helping the health and the welfare of America. I clearly wasn't focused on cigars when I read that. Well, go back to that <laughs> passage. Yeah, well, the idea was that it's more of a newspaper invention than an actual historical fact. But I, I won't spoil the, the rest of it for well, you. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> Well, speaking of, since we're on the tidbit section, what yes. just came to me? Well, you're talking about the second Rhode Island and yeah. that skirmishing on the 4th of July out there. I actually have an account from a soldier from the 26th North Carolina that's wounded in Pickett's Charge that at one point is yelling at the two skirmishers, hey, knock it off. We have wounded men out here. Stop firing over our heads. Which we sometimes forget that, hey, the attack ends and then it's just over. But yeah. You still had troops out there, mm -hmm. and I think so. I think that's an interesting account because when I read that, I was going, "Well, who's firing?" Well, it's the skirmish lines, yeah. and then it connects. That's July fourth. He's still out there a day later, um, so it all it all interconnects at some level. It does. It really does. Actually, Carol, before we go, I do have a question for you. Knowing obviously that you mm -hmm. are a former. West Point instructor, the Sedgwick statue at the Military Academy. Do you know anything about the origination of the legend, you know, where cadets will 
touch touch the spur for good luck before an exam. Do you know anything oh, about that? Not just touch, but spin, spin it. it. Spin the round. Oh, you keep correcting um, me. Spin, yeah. touch, it's the same oh, thing. Oh, no, you have to spin. But, I know. I've and you have to I run out there in it. your full dress uniform. I've spun it, but not in a yeah. dress uniform. Yeah. But point being, do you know anything about the history of that? The monument was designed to be built out of cannon that were captured by the Sixth Corps. I'm not sure how they identified them and all that sort of thing. But the story was cannon that were captured by the Sixth Corps were to be melted down and made into this, the statue of Sedgwick. Uh, I don't know how they settled on him. I mean, yeah. considering that a Grant monument just went up and, right. and things like that. Mm. So I, I would, well number of six corps officers do stay in the army for a long time and may have had a connection with the academy afterwards that wouldn't surprise me at all and uh so maybe that's how that happened. Well, you know, um, we, we didn't mention the fact that he's the highest ranking union general killed in the war. Was there maybe some some influence there well, when they were trying now, to commemorate? Now wait a minute. Now Sedgwick commands a I don't you have McPherson commanding no, army, yeah. but I think in terms of rank and seniority, Sedgwick was still above McPherson because there is that I mean date. date of rank perhaps. Yeah, exactly. But You mean Birdsey? <laughs> yeah, Birdsey, yeah. Um See, yeah, by date of rank, that's possible. It but, is, cor- it is, yeah. But if you're taking a look at, uh, you know, a, tab- a table of organization, they're always going to put Army above Corps. In any so, event, yeah. do, do we know if um, that maybe had any influence on, on the statue? Not. I don't think so. I mean, if they didn't put any, if they didn't put a McClellan statue or a Grant statue or a Sherman statue right. up, how do you get all the way down to Sedgwick? Well, how do, that's what you I'm know, trying to figure know, out. So, how do you get down to Sedgwick? Do we know? W- no, I don't. But what I can foresee would be something along the lines of Buford's statue here. Yeah. Mm. Some of his old officers. Yeah. Uh, built by a subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. That, that makes far more sense than uh, anything else. Em- Emory Upton is going to write, rewrite the tactics manuals right. when he gets assigned it, up there. Yeah. Um, I'd have to take a look through the list of superintendents and commandants after the, especially superintendents after the war to see if there was a, a Sedgwick staffer or yeah. a Sedgwick six corps veteran on it I mean I know Ruger later becomes but he's 12 you know th- th- that would be the answer okay. but the when I was up there yeah the Sedgwick statue was still a part of cadet lore and if there was an exam you thought you were going to have some trouble with you had to wait until midnight. You're supposed to be in barracks and asleep and all that stuff. So technically it's a violation of, of regulations, but seems to be one that's pretty well accepted. And, you know, full dress uniform, you have to go out and uh, spin the rowel, not just touch. But, right, I know. I don't and that, that's going to give you good luck and you're going to pass the exam. And so another reason why this is at the top of my mind, not only did Eric and I pay a visit to West Point recently where we did that, uh, but I recently saw an exchange on the internet where some internet scholars were saying that that is a myth. And that's not a myth. They, they actually do that, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we're, we're trying to debunk the myth here. I mean, yeah. they, they do it, right? You know, I think I figured it out. Why Cedric has a statue? And going back to wherever rank, Cedric's at Gettysburg. This is the most important event of the American <laughs> Civil War. What it comes back to, right? Come right. on. Who really pays attention to Atlanta? Exactly. And there goes all of our uh, listeners Atlanta in the great state of Georgia, yeah. but that's okay. Actually, yeah. you know what? No, I think most Georgians would like to forget the siege of Atlanta. Maybe. So, Maybe. so why isn't there a Reynolds monument up there? 
Ooh, yeah. I guess they said, well, wait a minute, Reynolds has one in the uh, in in the National Cemetery. Reynolds has a marker where he fell. But then again, so does Sedgwick. Mm-hmm. Reynolds has an equestrian, so does Sedgwick. Reynolds, Sedgwick was down a monument. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, man. yeah. Or we could, when we had some Reynolds monuments to spare to give to West Point, they wouldn't even need to erect one. We'll just ship it up to West Point. We, right. make, we make light. But when it came That's right... That's what we do half the time <laughs> yeah. here. When it came right down to it after the war was over, uh, there were, you know, the veterans tended to form regimental associations, write regimental histories and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, Sixth Corps, on the core level, doesn't seem to have organized that much, but an awful lot of Sixth Corps regiments did. Mm-hmm. And the Sixth Corps regiments have put their markers at a lot of different battlefields. Even if they weren't really at Antietam, a lot of the Sixth Corps regiments that fought in Antietam showed up as a division of the old Fourth Corps mm-hmm. instead. But if you go to Antietam, your, their markers will have mm-hmm. the Greek cross of the Sixth Corps on them. So now they're at Antietam. There are Sixth Corps monuments in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sixth Corps monuments down at Spotsylvania more than a whole lot of yeah. other corps because they were involved at the Mule Shoe and, and some others. There are some Sixth Corps monuments in the Shenandoah Valley mm-hmm. from the 64 campaign. And there were even veteran reunions and of Sixth Corps veterans in the Shenandoah, Shenandoah Valley, Valley as well. So they'll find their place and all that sort of thing. So they never forget that they're Sixth Corps people. Right. Mm-hmm. And you see more activity from them than you do from other corps in that regard. And as far as Uncle John, Uncle John will always be Uncle John to them. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's no question about that. The Sixth Corps doesn't seem to have many nicknames, mm-hmm. but one of the nicknames that they did have, and it came because of the march to Gettysburg, they began to call themselves Sedgwick's Cavalry. If you're in the Shenandoah Valley and you're serving under Sheridan anyway, it's kind of cool that you have a nickname of Sedgwick's Cavalry mm-hmm. yeah. to go along with Sheridan. Yeah. Carol, thanks very much for showing up, taking several hours out of your Sunday afternoon to uh, talk to us. We can't tell you, A, how thrilled we are to have you here and how much we enjoyed it. Well, this is too much like fun anyway, so well, you're glad welcome, to be here. You're welcome back anytime. <laughs> More editions of the Dan Sickles Report waiting for you. Well, I have to go and check out the cigar thing now. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell a true story? Sure, why not? When Sickles at Gettysburg came out, and I didn't know you that well at the time, um, when Sickles at Gettysburg, so we're talking 10 or 11 years old, um, I was at one of the book shows, probably the one down at at the All-Star, and doing, you know, literally like a first day book signing. The book arrives on Friday. I'm doing the book signing on Saturday. Worked through a few lines, and this is how I know she owns the book, because I've never forgotten this story. In line is Dr. Carol Reardon. And obviously, I'm very thrilled and honored to be signing this this book for her. And she says, thank you. She closes the book. She looks at me with a twinkle in her eye and says, I'm skeptical. And she walks away. (laughs) And that's how I know you own that book, because I've never forgotten that And that really, truly does sound like me. So there you go. You know, thinking about this, if Sickles didn't make his move, are we here talking about the importance of the Sixth Corps? Sickles made the Sixth Corps famous. Oh, please. This is a really good time to end this now because I may start throwing things at Eric. And next week you will have a podcast featuring Jim. And a revolving set of co-hosts because I have a Joseph Hooker level concussion that I'm dealing with. Jody, you want to take over next week? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely for Jim and Eric. Let's take the whole show. 
Well, because we got to have a depth chart here, you know. It, yeah, that's right. You know, contingency uh, planning. Yeah, yeah. I, yep. I can see it now. We'll, we'll list on our Facebook page. You know, co-host Eric, four to six weeks out, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, he's day to day, but then again, aren't we all? So that's true. And we are back. We have concluded our two-part interview with Carol Reardon in the Sixth Corps. Boy, I, I know the listeners enjoyed it. I know we enjoyed doing it. Eric, do you have any closing thoughts on it? You know, it was initially we thought we would probably be recording with, with Carol for maybe an hour or two. And there's just so much with the Sixth Corps that really you can delve into, not just what they do really kind of spearheading the pursuit mm -hmm. of Lee's army as far as infantry here, but what they'll do in the, in the Overland campaign, well, they will suffer heavy, heavy losses in that campaign. And of course, interest for me, what they're later going to do in the fall of 1864 in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, and of course the breakthrough April 2nd at Petersburg spearheaded once again, six Corps. So a lot of, a lot of interesting information there. I think a lot of great insights and and I think that's once again, this is something that I don't think you get anywhere else is this level of insight, this level of knowledge and and I think kind of the nuance on yeah. these subjects that they often deserve. Yeah. And can't thank Carol enough for participating and and coming on with us. I, her and I had been talking about this a long time ago and kind of settled on the uh, topic. I hope we didn't throw her for too much of a loop with the Dan Sickles report. Well, it happens. It happens. But certainly the Martin McMahon reference is a legitimate one in the history of the Sixth Corps. But it is always fun, and I'm just kind of tweaking the nose a little bit here. It is always kind of fun to find out which guests listen to the show and don't listen to the show. It, it is. Know, which we but, found on the weather episode, and now we've kind of found with Carol. Well, but, and also keep in mind, it wouldn't be the first time Dan Sickles <laughs> threw someone for a loop. That's exactly so. right. So so sorry, Martin McMahon did not get the uh, did not get elected did as he had hoped so poor martin mcmahon but no. dan sickles got elected gave us a park the rest of course is history the gettysburg national military park the house that dan sickles built so jim before we put a bow on this episode want to remind everyone where they can find us on social media all of that information is in the show notes also if you would like to give a donation to the show we would greatly appreciate it, it certainly defers a lot of the costs that we have and also make sure that this is still free as much as i hate the word content it is free content and i think some of the very best content out there as it relates to the civil war we you know anybody can make content it's a lot different when you have historians doing it i did neglect in the introduction to introduce Gettysburg is the content capital of the free world because we've started using that tag. And I have had a few people question, like, where is that coming from? Oh, come on, people. You know where that's coming from. But, you know, once again, I think it is we are producing what I think is some of the best content out there on the battle. I think in terms of some of the insights we're bringing, we have certainly, I think, shifted the way a lot of people think about the battle and that's something that we're going to continue to do and something that we're very proud of through our efforts through the show and i think this is just another example of that also another good way to help the show if you could leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice we have had some really great reviews coming in recently even one jim and i this is a direct quote from a listener referred to us as a national treasure 
of Civil War history. Well, that's very kind. Jim and Eric, the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, a national treasure. Thank you to whichever listener left that. We we appreciate that. That's very kind. Yes, and we certainly appreciate anyone that takes the effort to do that. It helps the show. So we are greatly appreciative of of all the efforts of the super fans, not just listening, but to the donations, showing up to events, and just their continued support as, as we have continued on with the show. And before we go, Jim, once again, remind the listeners of our still fairly new YouTube channel. Yeah, the YouTube channel is fledgling and growing. Uh, We're a couple months into it now. And as time allows, I throw a couple of videos out there. You know, a couple videos a month probably go out there. We just did my Custer talk to the Gettysburg Civil War Roundtable. And we just did Eric's epic 763 presentation on the 26th North Carolina. So both of those are just two of the, oh, I don't know. I think we're up to about 30 videos right now and by the time people listen to this it'll probably be more and continuing to grow so thanks and uh, please support us on youtube as well because kids that's probably where the future is right most likely once again more content we love content as long as it's content with context how about that can we can we coin that phrase But with that said, we will take this episode home. So uh, on behalf of Jim and I, we want to thank you for listening. Uh, This has been the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Good night, folks. And don't forget to get all your favorite Battle of Gettysburg podcast swag at our website, thebattleofgettysburgpodcast.com.